All right, praise God. Well, this morning we're going to go ahead and continue on in our study of the book of Galatians. This is part three. We're going to have five parts total. But as we get started this morning, I just want to bring to your remembrance last week, we kind of finished up with Paul defending his apostleship. Um, as he was, uh, like we said, he came into it a little bit differently than the apostles that walked with Jesus. He came into it a little bit afterwards. So people were, were, were discounting who he was, saying that, no, you're not an apostle, you didn't walk with Jesus. So he made his case saying that um, every bit as uh, an apostle is the others. And then he, at the end of our, our, our session last week, we get to see that he was beginning to make his case um, for the salvation to be by faith and not by works. And we're going to go ahead and continue to that as he dwells into that even more so this week, particularly looking into the, to the Word of God to make his case. If you remember last week, it was more about their experience. And this week, we're going to really dig into the Word of God to show that salvation actually is by faith and not by works. He's going to spend some time speaking about the weakness of the law, why it could never make us righteous. He's also going to talk about... Uh, the reason the law exists. Anybody ever wondered if, if the law wasn't the final solution? Why did we have it in the first place? So he's going to talk about that a little bit today. And, and finally, we're going to end uh, beginning chapter 4 of the book of Galatians. We're going to see that we have been adopted into the family of God as adult sons, which makes us heir to the promise that was made to Abraham and his offspring. So you guys ready for that this morning? Now, just to uh, give you guys a heads up, this one's, this one's a pretty, pretty heavy one. There's a lot of theology and stuff are going to go on, so, so buckle up, it's about to get deep. So we start up in Galatians 3.10, it says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. So like I just said, Paul is writing this letter to the Galatians, and you remember last week he'd spent the time asking them to consider their experience. He said, listen, when you received salvation, did you receive it by works of the law or did you receive it by grace? What was your experience? And we, we know that the obvious answer to that one was they received it by faith. They received the Spirit by faith. They didn't receive it by works of the law. But Paul recognizes an important thing. While our experience is important when demonstrating the reality of God in our lives, our experience and our feelings is not what we judge the truth of God by. So, let me say that again. Our experience is important. We can, we can use our experience to validate the truth of the Word of God. We can say that this is what the truth says and it was real in my life. I experienced it. But your experiences is not what validates the truth of God. Your feelings, how you feel about something, does not validate the truth of God. And the reason is that this can't be our only evidence to determine if something is from God. Because how many know that there are other things that can influence your experience? There are other things that can influence your feelings. A prime example of this would be a person that feels like that they've been, they've been sick or they got cancer because God's trying to teach them a lesson because maybe they acted ungodly in their life at one point. And they, they think to themselves, you know what? I feel like if I would have just went to church more, if I would have just read my Bible more, if I would have just been nicer to people, if I would have just done all these things, they, they feel like that God wouldn't be doing this to them. That's their experience. That's their feelings. But the reality is, is that Jesus poured the 
bore the punishment for our, for our failures. He bore sickness in his body so that we wouldn't have to be sick. And it would be unjust of God to ask us to pay a bill that has already been paid. Jesus already paid the price for that. But their experience is real. Their feelings are real. They do have cancer. They're still going through those things. But there's an enemy out there that's causing those things. He wants to steal, kill, and destroy in your life. And in this particular example, sickness is from the enemy, not from God. Even though many times when we fail, our feelings are that we have to do something to make up for it. Do you guys get what I'm saying? The difference is that your feelings don't validate the truth of God. Another example that you might have heard of, and I'm not going to call it any by name, but there are certain religions that will go, go along and ask you to, to determine if something is true by praying about it and, and see what kind of feeling you get from it. If you pray about it and you get this feeling, that proves that it's from God. But could not a, a demon cause that feeling that you're feeling in order to deceive you, to trick you? Could not something else be causing those things? Our experience is not enough to validate the truth of God. Our experience, in order to to validate the truth of God, has to be in line with the truth in the Word of God. And our feelings are not an accurate indicator in and of themselves of the truth of God. So with, with that in mind, Paul begins to continue his case. He says, I get that feelings aren't the only answer. I want you to consider your experience because you went through it and you understand what's going on. But now, let's take a look at what the Word of God has to say about that. So last week, we saw him start uh, looking at the law when he showed that Abraham was saved by faith, right? Because Abraham believed God and it was considered to him righteousness. And he also demonstrated that salvation was always intended for the entire world, for all nations, including the Gentiles, because the Scripture says that that all nations would be blessed through Abraham. And the people that Paul is dealing with, the people that are misleading the Galatian church at this point, the Judaizers who are saying, no, you have to become a Jew first before you become a Christian, they're trying to bring the law back into it. So Paul says, all right, you want to bring the law back into it? Let's go take a look at the law and see what it actually has to say about salvation. And he begins to point out that anybody who relies on the works of the law is cursed. It says, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. And my first thought is like, wait a minute, how can that be? The, the law was sent by God. There's no doubt about that. God gave the law to Moses to give to the people. And if the law came to God's people from God, how can it be bad? How can the law actually be a curse to somebody? But the truth is, the law in and of itself is not the curse. Because it was from God. The the law was holy. The law was good. The law isn't what makes people cursed. But rather, it's because no one but Jesus has ever lived a perfect life. Nobody but Jesus has ever lived up to the standard that is in the book of the law. No one but Jesus has ever been there. So that means that if you try to follow the works of the law... But you are, even if you've lived the most perfect life because we're shut up under the the original sin of Adam because we're we're, we're bound to that as well, even if you could live the perfect life, you're never going to measure up to the standard that is made here. And I I actually think that argument's ridiculous. What do you mean if I live the perfect life? You can make that, that theoretical argument all you want. Nobody has ever, you can't blame it on Adam. Nobody's ever lived perfectly in their life. 
And if that's the case, then we don't measure up, then we're under a curse because this is the standard and we're always underneath it. We can't meet it. So that means we're cursed. So it's not the law that curses us, but it's the reality of the lives that we're living. If we make one mistake in regard to the law, we are under that curse. And unless we have come under the law of grace, unless we have received Jesus and come into that new covenant, not being under the law, then, then we're under a curse. We're, we're in a bad kind of way. Amen? Amen? So then in Galatians 3.11-14, it says, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather. The one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. So Paul begins to once again look into Scripture to describe what the law actually is. And he, he quotes Habakkuk 2.4 here when he says that the righteous shall live by faith. So this is in Habakkuk, this is in the Old Testament, well before Jesus came along, and Paul's once again showing that this idea of righteousness by faith is not a new thing. Somehow, we seem to think this new covenant, this righteousness by faith, has came along with the, the advent of the Christian church, but that's just not the case. This has always been the idea, we see it in Abraham's life, we see it in Habakkuk, where it says the righteous shall live by faith. This isn't a new idea. But it's actually been the theme of the Scriptures since day one, all the way back in Genesis. So then I suppose that what Paul's getting into here is someone could have made the argument, but wait a minute, alright, we believe you that righteousness is by faith, but we're, we're going to argue that the, the law is all part of that faith. You know, Living according to the law is living according to faith. But Paul goes, no, that's, that's, not, that's not the case. Living, living by the law is not faith because the Scripture says the one who does them shall live by them. And this is him also, uh, this is him quoting Leviticus 18, 18, 5. He says that the law is not faith because the one who does them lives by them. You see, the problem with, with works is the doing. If you're doing them, then the law is not faith. Because the doing begins to rely on what you've accomplished, what you've done. Why do you have to have faith if everything is based on what you can accomplish? If you're getting it all done right, you don't have to trust God for anything because you got it figured out. Faith is trust and reliance in God, but doing is trust and reliance in yourself. So then the question could be asked, if the law is a curse and we're once under it, how do we get out of it then? So, all right, Paul, we're following you this far. We see that the law is, is not faith and we're under a curse in it. So, so how are we supposed to get under, out from underneath that curse? Because the truth is, the law has to be dealt with. The law was given. This is the standard of God, the measure of God, the yardstick of God. And how many know that, that God doesn't change? That is His measuring, His measuring stick. Whether we are bound up underneath the law or not, that's still the standard of measure that we have to hit. So how do we hit that standard of measure if we've already shown that we can't hit that standard of measure? And that's where Jesus came in. It says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse for us. Somebody had to pay that price, that, that 
the reality is, as we've read in the book of Romans, that the wages of sin is death. That has to be dealt with. And in Romans seven twelve it says, So the law is holy, the commandment is holy, and righteous and good. The, tr- the, the law is good. There's nothing wrong with the law in and of itself. But the problem was that sin took advantage of that law in our lives. You know, for, for the most part, p- people were living their lives just going along and they didn't realize how bad they were messing up. And the law came along and they went, oh man, we just ain't getting it right. Then in Romans 7, 8-11, through 11, it says, But sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death for me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, it killed me. The law came and it began to point out all of our ugly flaws, all of our ugly shortcomings. And it was supposed to be a way to show that if you can live to this standard, you will be righteous and you're good to go. But all it did was sin took advantage of that and just used it to show us how bad we really were messing up. But like I said, since the law is good and holy, it has to be fulfilled. It's the Word of God. His standard is not going to change. The Scripture says that God is not the Son of Man that He should, or not a man that He should lie, and not the Son of Man that He should change His mind. These are, the law was, God, is and was God's standards. And Romans 3.10 says that none is righteous, no, not even one. So we all learn that none of us can fulfill that law. But that's where Jesus came in. And He redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming that very curse for us. He's quoting Deuteronomy 21-23 here as it cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. He says, you know what? There is a curse of the law. But Jesus took care of it. And let me show you in the Scriptures where it talks about that. Once again, you've got to remember Paul is talking to these Galatians and saying if they want to bring the law into it, let's take a look at the law and what it says. And he shows that in the law, it says that cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And we find that Jesus was hung on a cross to become that very curse for us. Jesus paid the price that was due. To be sure, death was required. There was a, a payment to be made. There was a penalty to be extracted for the sin in yours and mine's life. And there's no getting around that because God is a just God. It would be unjust for God to say, you know what, I'm just going to let that slide and push it away. It would be very unjust for God to do that. So justice had to be served, and that's where Jesus came in. Because Jesus stood in as a surrogate for us. He took our place and died the death that we should have died. He paid the punishment that we should have paid. And because of that, God remains just. And we're able to live when we should have died. And also, while the, while the law was a covenant between the Jewish people and God, Jesus died for us all. And He entered into a new covenant with man where Jew and Gentile are alike. And we're all made righteous if we'll only place our faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Amen? And he continues on in Galatians three fifteen through 18 He says, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham, 
him and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many. I actually had to look that up. I'm like, I use the word offspring in the singular and plural. <laughs> Did you know that offsprings is actually an, a valid uh, use of the word uh, plural for offsprings? Yeah. So says the dictionary. But there's other translations that use the word seed, which makes more sense here. Is that the promise, and uh, I believe the New American Standard says to Abraham and to his seed, and not seeds. And we're very clear on seed versus seeds. But uh, the point is, is that the, this is a singular word, and uh, even though we use it the same, the same way in English language, but this does not say into offsprings, referring to any, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. When an agreement is made between two people, no one can come along later and change it except for the two people that made the agreement. So to give an example today that we would deal with is if you were to go and sign a lease with your landlord, and you know typically we do year leases, or like I just signed a lease for five years for the church. We sign a, a lease with our landlord, and what that means is that he can't come back later and make a change without agreement on my part. Or his child, his son, couldn't come and say, you know what, I know you get, you've had this lease for a month, but I've, I've, I'm thinking some different stuff than my dad, so we're going to make some changes real quick. The agreement is made. The agreement is done. Nobody can come back and change the original except for the two parties that made the original agreement. You guys follow me on that? Because that's what he's getting into here. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified, once it's been agreed upon, once we've signed on the dotted line, it is what it is, right? So if this is true of agreements or covenants, made by sinful man, how much more so would it be for a covenant given by God? So in this case, the covenant that God had made was between Abraham and his offspring and God. Those were the parties of the covenant covenant that was made. And who is this offspring? We see that it's Jesus. Paul refers to this offspring as, as Jesus Christ. Not many offsprings, but the covenant was actually between Abraham, Jesus, and God. And we can, we can see that this kind of language is actually used elsewhere in the Scriptures. We see in Genesis 3.15, it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The same wording is being used there to talk about Jesus. Once again, the offspring of the woman that bruised the, the head of the, of the devil was Jesus, right? So if that be the case, that this covenant was between Abraham and God, then the law which came centuries later does not annul or invalidate or or nullify the original covenant. The law came after the covenant already made with Abraham and God. In a nutshell, the law which comes later does not change what God had already promised to His people. It does not add to the promise, and it does not make the original promise void. 
Booker T. Washington describes meeting an ex-slave from Virginia in his book, Up From Slavery, and he says, I found that this man had made a contract with his master two or three years previous to the Emancipation Proclamation to the effect that the slave was to be permitted to buy himself by paying so much per year for his body, and while he was paying for himself, he was to be permitted to labor where and for whom he pleased. Finding that he could secure better wages in Ohio, he went there, and when freedom came, he was still in debt to his master some $300. Notwithstanding that the Emancipation Proclamation freed him from any obligation to his master, this black man walked the greater portion of the distance back to where his old master lived in Virginia and placed the last dollar with interest in his hand. In talking to me about this, the man told me that he knew that he did not have to pay his debt, but that he had, been given, but he had given his word to his master in his word He had never broken, and he had felt that he could not enjoy his freedom until he fulfilled his promise. The same thing that this man dealt with is if if this man could honor his promise, even though the law came in later to free him. This was the Emancipation Proclamation came and it freed the slaves, right? But he had already worked out a deal a few years earlier, and and he wouldn't have had to pay that, but he kept his word because he determined that the promise he made was not invalidated by the law that came after it. And the same thing is true for God's word. Even though the law came freeing this man, it, it didn't invalidate his promise. And in the same way, God did not change his promise to Abraham and to his offspring and to man when the law came. However, we know that the case, now that the inheritance was a promise made to Abraham. But if the law were to come in and take its place, then the inheritance would come by the law. But we know that the inheritance wasn't by the law. It was a promise, and God gave it to Abraham as a promise. He said that I am giving this to you. I am going to bless you. And because he believed him, it was known as righteousness. And then in Galatians 3:19 through 20 we find that that Paul has kind of put himself in a pickle though. He says, "Why the why then the law?" And in Galatians 3:19 through 20 he says, "Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary." Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. You guys doing okay with me now? I told you this one's getting kind of a little bit heavy, a little bit. We're digging in a little bit deep. But uh, Paul wrote it, not me, and we've got to deal with it. So, <laughs> But, but now, we're, now Paul's got himself in a pickle. He says, you know what? The law, the righteousness doesn't depend on the law. And he's made a, an incredible case for that, saying that no, the law is, is by faith, or righteousness is by faith, not by the law. But now we have a problem. If you just spend all that time talking about how the law is not necessary for righteousness, why the heck did God send the law then? What was its purpose? What was its point? And Paul said that it was added for transgressions. It was there to be our measuring stick. It was there to point out what was really going on, to show us that we did, in fact, need a Savior. There's a a story that I want to tell you that kind of explains what's going on perfectly. It says, long ago a story was told about a proud fishing pond and a fish. And across the land, fishermen would come and exclaim how clear the water was in this pond. 
Upon hearing yet another positive accolade, the pawn's level of pride began to reach flood stage. I must be the best and clearest pond in the world. And it didn't take long for the old fish at the bottom to grow weary of his overdone pride. He had heard it for years, and he, better than anyone, knew what was really in this pond. And resting on the bottom of the pond, the old fish began to rapidly flutter his fins. And as he did, the motion of the water began to stir up the silt on the bottom. And it did not take long for the pond to fill up with a murky cloud. And he said, Stop! What are you doing to me? How dare you dirty me up? screamed the offended pond. But the fish responded in a measured and striking words, I haven't done a thing to you except to show you what has been in you all the time. That's what the law did for us. Like the fish, you know, man was going around thinking that they had it figured out. They were doing everything right. What do we need to trust God for? We're in the clear. And then God sent His law because of transgressions, He says, basically to show man that no, you're not in the clear. What the law did was just to to point out, to show us what was already inside of us, like the the fish did to the pond as it stirred up the dirt. The dirt was always in that pond. It had just not been seen. It had just been settled down, but the fish showed him it was there. And the same thing happened to us when God sent the law to show us that, you know what? Yes, actually, don't measure up. You're not getting it done. You're not doing it on your own. You do need a Savior. You do need to put your trust in me. And I'll be honest, I've asked this question of myself so many times. If Jesus was the plan all along, then why the law? And the truth is that if if it were not for the law to show us our shortcomings, we would all probably just sit back and explain to God how we can do it on our own. How we don't need Him. The truth is is that even with the law being given, the measuring stick being made plain, there are still people who walk this earth today that say, I don't need that. I can do it on my own. I'm basically a good person. I'm good enough. What do I need this Savior for? I can do it it myself. You know, the reason the law came is so that we couldn't go to God and say, we don't need this Jesus of yours. Because the truth is, if we, if we take a look back at the standards and the requirements of God, every single one of us in this room will recognize that not just on one occasion, but multiple occasions have we fallen short. He then goes on to say that to, to continue to describe the difference between the law and the, and the promise, is he says that it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. This is talking about the law. It says that <clears throat> until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, it was, speaking of the law, put into place through angels by an intermediary. So, And it says now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. What he's saying here is that the law came through the agent of angels through Moses. Moses was the intermediary. He represented both God and the Jewish people. And the law came through Moses to both of those people. But the promise didn't require a mediator because the promise was made unilaterally and directly from God to Abraham. We didn't need someone in the middle to represent both people because God made that of his own decision, his own free determination. And he said, you know what? This doesn't require anything on your part. I'm going to make you this promise. All you have to do is believe me. 
And along these lines, that if Moses was the mediator between Israel and God and not between Abraham and God, which we know is the case, then the law would, by legal definition, have no impact on anybody other than the Israelites, the Jewish people. You follow me on that? The, the, it was made between, the law was between the Israelites and God. So therefore, that contract, that covenant, was just between the people of God, the Israelites and God, and not all the other nations of this world. But God made His promise directly to Abraham without a mediator and declared that all the nations would be blessed in him. So the promise that God made to Abraham actually translates to everyone, but the, the law was given just to the Jewish people. So forgetting the fact that Jesus also had freed the Jews from the law, how could anyone try to apply the law to the Gentiles when their promise inheritance isn't a result of the promise made to Abraham? Paul's saying that doesn't make any sense. The promise that was made to Abraham affects Jews and Gentiles alike, but the, the law was only made, that covenant was only made with the Jewish people. It doesn't make any sense why you would require them to become a Jew before they become Christians when that's, not, that's kind of a sidestep out of the way. The promise was already made to them. And it had nothing to do with the law given to Moses. So as we continue on in Galatians 3.21-22, Paul says, well then, if that's the case, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? He says, certainly not. The NASB, I love how the NASB translates that. He goes, may it never be. Absolutely not. The law is not contrary to the promises of God. He says, for if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under, under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. How are we doing time-wise? All right. So, if the law does not add to or do away with the original promise, then is it contrary to the promise of God? Does it somehow uh, contradict the original promise? And, and Paul says, certainly not. The law is not in opposition or contrary to the promises of God. The, the law just describes the standard that man must obtain to be righteous. And this will never change. This standard is never going to change. God is never going to say, you know what, Jesus is at this fun, but I'm just going to go ahead and lower the standard so everybody else will get in. It's not contrary to the promise because the standard of righteousness is the law. That was what we have to, to live up to. And there's only two ways to meet this standard. And one is to never sin and to somehow not be shut up under original sin. And the other is to place your faith in Jesus. Because the standard has to be met. And Paul says, you know what, if that standard, if it was possible to meet that standard, if the law had been given that could give life, if it was possible to meet that standard just by following the law, then, then it would have been by the law. If it, was, if it was possible to do it through the law, then God would have never sent His Son to come down and be tortured and die on the cross for us. God wouldn't be like, both seem pretty like pretty good ideas, but I think I'm going to go ahead and, and have my son killed because that'll be fun for me. Jesus would have never had to lay down his life if we could have obtained it through the law. If the law was the answer, it would have ended there. 
It says, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, Here's another interesting thing that I've, I've also thought about many times because it's, it's difficult to understand what this scripture is talking about right here. And what he's saying is that the scriptures say that we're all shut up under sin. We're all imprisoned under sin because of the fall of Adam. When Adam sinned, that sin has been passed down to the generation and generation. Even if you could live the perfect life, you would still be under the curse because of what Adam has done. In Romans 5.12 it says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin... And so death spread to all men because all sinned. That's what it's talking about. Through Adam, sin came into the world. And we've all been imprisoned and shut up under this through the one act of Adam. However, this is done so that all men can receive the promise by faith through one man. In Romans 5.15 it says, But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through the one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for the many. You see, when we look at this, it might seem originally unfair that all of us have imprisoned, been imprisoned in Scripture under sin. It seemed like that's unfair. And we say, God, why am I being held responsible for what Adam did? And that's our initial thought. That doesn't seem fair, God. He's the one that did it. Why am I going to pay the penalty for that? Because as people, we don't want to be doomed for somebody else's failure. We want to be held up. We want to be judged by our own merit and our own worth, right? Anybody else had that thought that maybe this is a little unfair? I've thought about this. I'm like, why? This doesn't make any sense. But the truth is, as I made the argument, why can't I be held up for what I've done? I, I take a step back and I look at my life and go, yeah, I kind of know how I lived my life. Maybe I don't want to be held accountable for what I've done. So what seemed to be something that was incredibly unfair turned out to be one of the most beneficial things that God has ever done for us. All mankind was shut up in sin because of Adam's failure, but because of that, all mankind could be redeemed by the work of one man who is Jesus Christ. It seemed unfair, but it turned out to be the most graceful and beneficial things that could ever happen to us because that means that we can actually be considered righteous. Because none of us, no matter how good we are, have lived our lives perfectly. Amen? Amen. Then in Galatians 3.23-26, it says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. So before Jesus came, the role of the law was actually to act as our guardian. And when we were trying to, uh, some translate this as schoolmaster, guardian, guardian's probably the most accurate translation of what's trying to be implied here and we can kind of think of that like a legal guardian today so the first thing we have to recognize about a legal guardian is one a legal guardian does not give faith or does not give life to its to the child right the parents gave life to the child the legal guardian didn't give life to the child 
But all the legal guardian's role and responsibility is to regulate the life of the child, right? They're there to make sure they're doing the right thing. So what does a guardian do? If we were to have a legal guardian placed over somebody, what do they do? Well, first, just like the difference between a biological parent and a legal guardian, like I said, the, the guardian doesn't give life. The, all they can do is regulate the life. And the same is true of the law. The law will never give us life. It can only attempt to regulate the life that we live. Also, a guardian is, is, is to keep their charge safe, right? They don't allow them to do all manner of sinful and unsavory things, but they point out wrong from right. And that's what the law did for us as well. It was intended to keep you away from those things that could hurt and damage you through sin. It was there to point out, these are the wrong things, don't do them. And then a guardian is also there to help bring their charge into maturity. And to point them in the right direction. As a legal guardian, you were there to raise that child, to teach them the ways of the world. And the same thing in the scripture as the law was our guardian. If we look at all the practices in the law, it's to point us to Jesus Christ. Even the sacrifices made under the law were just a type and a shadow of the sacrifice, the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The law was there to be our guardian until Jesus finally came. And the law is temporary. The law was only meant to be temporary as a guardian. It was only there until Jesus came. So when Jesus came, the law could be done away with. Kind of like a legal guardian. In this same analogy, we can think of the, the coming of faith. It says that, that we were imprisoned under the law until the coming of faith would be revealed. That can kind of be thought of in the analogy of a legal guardian, the coming of age. You know, when, when, when you have the charge over somebody, even as, a, as parents, at some point they're going to turn 18 and they're going to go do their own thing. Our time of being their guardian, of being their charge has been done, and we're no longer needed to direct their life. They should be doing that on their own, right? So the same thing happens here. The, the law, until the coming of faith, the coming of age was revealed in the life of a Christian when Jesus came, it was our guardian. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian for in Christ Jesus, we are all sons of God through faith. We no, no longer need a guardian to show us our way and to point us to Jesus because He is here. The law of God is written on our hearts. And we don't need a law book, a rule book, to tell us to live righteous because we've already been made righteous in Him. And as born-again believers, we live from that righteousness. We live from that victory. That's why we say as Christians, you know, we're not under the law, but that doesn't mean that we're free to sin. We're actually free from sin. The law of God has been written on our hearts, and we're finally able to live from righteousness and from victory instead of, while under the law, living towards it. In Jesus Christ, you've finally been made righteous and pure and holy, and now we can finally begin to live the life that is inside of us instead of working on attaining that goal. Amen? All right. In Galatians three twenty-seven through 29, it says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So he begins out here talking about as many of you that were baptized into Christ. And this isn't referring to water baptism, but it's actually referring to being identified with Christ and His salvation. Baptism is used literally in the Bible 
to mean fully submerged or to be whelmed. That's what we talk about when, when we baptize people. We fully submerge them under the water because that's the picture of baptism is to be fully whelmed under the water. But it's also used figuratively in the Scripture as well. Because an example of this would be in 1 Corinthians 10.2. It says, And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. This is a figurative baptism. And in 1 Corinthians 12.13, it says, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. Once again, this is figurative use of the word baptism to show that we are, are, are whelmed into the body of Christ. He says that what Paul is basically saying is that those who have been baptized into Christ have been identified with his body. We've been identified as Christians. We are part of that role. And then he says if we have been baptized with Christ, then we have put on Christ. And the first thing that, that we see when we look at putting on Christ is, the, is referring to putting off your old self. The old man is done and dead and dealt with and put away and you put on, the, you put on Christ, the new life of Jesus Christ. In Colossians 3, 8-10 it says, But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, saying that, you've, that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. That's the first thing, is having put on Christ. We put off our old self and put on the new life of Christ who lives inside of us. But also to the Galatians, as he was speaking, this would also have uh, another meaning, this idea of changing clothes. Because when a Roman child became of age, he took off his childhood garments and he put on the adult Roman toga. He put on his adult clothes. So the, the picture here is also of a child growing up. They're putting on Christ, putting on new clothes. They're growing away from being under a guardian of the law, but putting on their adult clothes as an adult son of God when they put their faith in Jesus. The believer has an adult status before God. We stand before God as adult sons of God. We have already graduated. We're no longer under a guardian. We are adult sons and heirs of the promise. So why would we want to go back into childhood by bringing the law back into grace? And that's essentially what they were trying to do. They were trying to to revert back to childhood when they tried to mix the law and grace. And we know that this is not limited to become an adult son of Christ, to be baptized into Christ is not limited by your by your social status, your background, your nationality, whether male or female, none of that matters. We are all brought in under the promise made to Abraham. Rich, poor, none of that matters. And because of that, we are to share in the inheritance of the promise. We are heirs to the promise in Abraham. And then as we continue on into Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, he says that, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. He goes on also to make the, the, the association that is when we were childs, when we were children in the law, then they were no different than a slave. 
And what he means is the Jewish people, while they were under the guardianship of the law, they had no real participation in the promise. Even though it was theirs because they were the children of God and they were the heirs, their life was managed by their managers and their guardians. It would be like today when we look at uh, a child who has a, has a parent die and they receive a large inheritance. How many know that you don't give you know, $300,000 to a 12-year-old? What do we do with it? We put it in trust until they become an adult and they can receive what is rightfully theirs. Now, while they're 12, it's still theirs, right? But what can they do with it? Nothing. They can't touch it until they're an adult. And the same thing was happening here. He says that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from the slave, even though he's the owner of everything. He's still under managers. He's still under guardianship until the date set by his father. And he says, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. So he's saying that as, as the Jewish people were the same, as we were under the law, we were, we were under managers, we were under a guardianship. And he says they were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. And I spent a lot of time studying this, and, and pretty much every commentary agrees on what's being said here, is that, that basically they're dealing with the, the ABCs of, of God. They're dealing with the elementary principles of this world are the basics of the scripture, the basics of the law. It's the basic principles. Basically, it's like them going to elementary school and, and, learning, and learning basic math and their ABCs. They're just learning how to write. And that's where they were when they were, when they were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world where they were children under the law. That's where they were stuck. They could never graduate and begin to, to grow into intelligent uh, men and women who would write poetry and, and songs and all these things if we're looking at the, the, the view of a child. They have to grow up. They have to learn these things. But under the law, they were stuck in these elementary principles. The school, there was a school talent show that was filled with young children who were more than willing to dazzle the proud parents in the audience. And of all the talent on display that night, one first grader had the most unique talent. And he walks up there in front of the whole stage and he's got an accordion and he plays one note. He waits a second and he plays the exact same note again. Is that what an accordion sounds like? Probably not. <laughs> Deal with it. Who, is, who laughed first? You get to make the next sound. <laughs> so then he goes and he plays the same note a third time. And when he was done, he stands with his head high and his shoulders puffed out and he says, I wrote that song myself. <laughs> you know, it's cute when a kid does something like this. But if an adult were to do the same thing, we would laugh them off the stage. Because they haven't grown up. They haven't grown into what they were grown, supposed to have grown into. And in a very real sense, going back to the law would be like a, a concert pianist standing up in front of a crowd and going, ding, ding, ding. I wrote this one myself. That's what the, the believer, the Christian, going back to the law, bring, that's exactly what it's like. It's like a college student going back to kindergarten. We've already graduated past that. We, we were children under the law, but now we are no longer under a guardian. We are adult sons in Christ. Amen? And what time is it? All right. We're going to go ahead and finish up here. In Galatians 4, 4 through 7, it says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, 
born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. It says, in the fullness of time, what he's speaking about is, is God's timing. When the world was ready for it, he sent his son. And we might think that, man, it took too long. Those people suffered a lot under the law. Why didn't this come earlier? Why did we have the law in the first place? Why did, you know, all these thoughts that can go through our head of how, how we might have done it better if we were God. But the truth is, God knows what he's doing. Just like now as we, we wait for the return of Jesus, the scripture says in 2 Peter 3.9 that we see that God is not slow in keeping his promises, as some count slowness. You know, it's been 2,000 years and over 2,000 years and Jesus hasn't come back. That seems like a long time, but God's waiting for the fullness of his time. He wants every person to have the opportunity to be saved. Paul says, when this fullness of time came, he sent his son to redeem us from the curse so that we could be adopted as sons and people are that are smarter smarter than me say that this could be more accurately translated as as adult sons not children but actually sons and heirs to the promise we have full access to the promise of God and we're not just slaves or servants but like I said sons we can actually call him father no mere servant could ever call their master father. That wasn't a right that they have, but we have that right to call him father. And even more so, the spirit of his son is in our hearts crying out, Abba, Father. And that word Abba would be like uh, some of us saying today, Papa. It's an endearing term for our father. It's reserved only for sons. And it indicates a closeness that we can have with our God, our Father. You see, before Jesus, those under the law were children. But after Jesus, with their faith placed firmly in Him, they're now adults, able to fully appreciate and participate in the promises of God made to Abraham. And we also share in that same promise of God, having been adopted by sons by faith. Amen? Amen. So you guys doing all right? You guys made it through all right with that one? I know it's a, a little bit steep, but it's good stuff. And... Uh, and I hope that uh, helped, helped you understand a little bit of what you've read before. Because I, I definitely know that when I spend time studying these to get ready to preach them, I learn so much every time. And I hope you were blessed by it. So let's go ahead and uh, stand to our feet.